1 John 2, starting in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 17. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lusts thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to continue the series in 1 John. And as, you, as I open up my PowerPoint there and you read that, I would really like to look into the minds of everybody sitting here um, and see what you think about the question. Um, we're in a series of questions, and this is, or a series of tests in 1 John. And I'll just review them a little bit here. Um, and we come to the fourth test, the test of, do you love the Father more than the world? Just finished reading that. I know as a young boy sitting in the pews here at Weavertown, we've heard many things about worldliness, um, many things about not being part of the world, and I don't know if that's preached very often anymore, so I kind of tremble as I think about it's not the popular subject to preach about, but since it's in 1 John and since I come to that, um, I am going to be preaching on this subject. Like I said, growing up in the church here, it was talked about quite a bit. I think it might have been from the fundamentalist movement, carried on to Weavertown eventually, um, and where worldliness was talked a lot about. But if you go throughout history, you'll see the church constantly, the early church talked about it. And then it was kind of left when apostasy came in, it was kind of went away. Um, but I think about my own life, and I like to say right now, I don't have this cornered by any means, not even close. And as I was digging into God's word here, I realized um, the Lord's got a lot for me to teach and my desire to love God more than the world. Um, I don't think we as a church have it cornered by any means either. And I'll say this, maybe to help us think through this a little more. I sit in the lunchroom at work, and there's some very conservative people um, in that lunchroom, um, mostly Amish uh, um, good people, bless them a lot. Um, and you would sit in that room and you quickly realize that they do not have a corner on worldliness either. You go to the evangelical churches in our country and where we see, um, well, I don't need to say more. I don't think there's a, they have the corner on worldliness either. You'll find pockets of people in churches who love God more than the world. Um, it's not just the church they go to, but um, or the way they dress or the way they look that proves that they love God more than the world. But there are some things that I think we have, can learn from history and learn from even our 
forefathers here at Weavertown about um, this idea of worldliness. And I realized as I got older, this whole thing of worldliness is something um, for real. It's a test of salvation. Do we love the world more than we love God? It's important to understand this. It's important to get a hold of this. This is a salvation thing. And I say, you say, well, if you're worldly, you're not saved. Is that what you're saying? If you dress a certain way, you're not. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this thing of loving the world more than God tells me what? I'm not going to answer that question for you. I want you to think about that. Let's just read the verse. Do you love the world or anything in the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, it's for real. It's a big deal. We do need to love God more than the world. First John. I'm going to just go back and review the tests that we talked about um, already. Um, it's been quite a few months since I um, preached in First John. But the theme of 1 John is 5.13. These things have I written unto you that ye believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God. In some translation it says that ye may know that ye know that ye have eternal life. This is assurance of salvation. Okay? There's tests that we could have. Now I will say this. When John wrote this, he wrote this to Christians. Okay? Not to scare them into thinking they're not saved. But he believed they were saved. And he said, I want you to understand you can be assured that you're saved. And here's how you can know. Just put these tests in your life. Do you love the Father? Um, and I'm just going to quickly go over the five tests or um, series of tests that I think um, is found in here. You could add more, subtract more in 1 John. But John was, 1 John was giving this message. And this is the theme of 1 John to the church. And there was a bunch of churches around Ephesus that were receiving this message saying, you can be assured of your salvation. I'm not going to go why he wrote this book, um, but he wanted them to know. And in fact, throughout history, preachers would often take people, when somebody would come and say, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not. Say, read First John. And I want to tell you that too. If you are concerned about your salvation, read First John. Um, and I think First John, if you're saved, will assure you of it. You can feel comfortable in believing that I am saved um, and by reading First John. The first test is, do you have fellowship with the Father? Do you walk in the light? Um, a Christian will walk in the light. They will, and how do we find the light? By the Word of God. Okay? A Christian will want to be in the Word of God. They want to have fellowship with the Father. They love light more than darkness. Um, we find that um, in verse 6 there in chapter 1. Next test, do you live as a repenter? Now... A lot of people say Christians, or some people believe Christians after they're saved are perfect. I don't believe that because I read First John there, and I think the last three or four verses, or uh, last three verses of First John, make it very clear. If you say I am without sin, you're a liar. And then he goes on to say, if you say you're without sin, you're calling God a liar. You can read those verses there. Um, we are not perfect. I don't believe in Christian perfectionism. Um, God is and but we know what to do when we do sin. It's very clear. If you're a Christian, you are repenting, right? We are growing. We're repenting. We don't live in our sin as a Christian, but we repent. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the third one might be the hardest one of all, and this is found in chapter 2, verse 6. I'm just going to read this verse. Um, it goes like this. He that saith he abideth in him, 
ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So if you're a Christian, you're doing what? You're walking like Jesus. Now that seems just about impossible for me. Walking like Jesus walked? Is that possible? And it's interesting, all three of these things, or all five of these things, we're going to note. It's going to seem, and as we're sitting here, we're going to say, I can't do this. This is more than I can handle. I love the illustration, Paul Washer, and I think it kind of sums up all five of these assurances or tests. Paul Washer says, as a young boy, his daddy lived, grew up on a farm, and as a young boy, his dad, big strapping guy, would go out in the snow in the middle of the winter in Minnesota, and he'd take water to the horses and water to the animals, and he'd carry two big buckets of water, and he'd stump out through and um, take the water to the horses, and he would go through the one foot of snow or however deep the snow was and get to wherever he needed to go. Well, Paul, as a young boy, as an eight or nine-year-old, wanted to follow his father, who he loves so much. So he would get his little bucket of water and he would try to step in step with his father's step in the snow and follow his father. Now, why did he do that? Because he loved him. But if you would have looked at that step as Paul was walking to follow his father, there was a lot of stumbling going on, trying to follow him step by step. It's a little the illustration for us. We love our father so much. We want to walk in his steps. We want to walk in his ways. But as we're walking his ways, I think if we're honest, most of us are stumbling. But why we keep walking? Because we love the Father. Um, And so then the next, do you love the Father more than the world? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And then um, our next, my next series is going to be, do you love the brothers? And that's chapter three. So this morning, let's go into chapter two. And let's look at what God says or what John's saying here about loving the Father more than the world. These are familiar verses. They're not new, but we're going to dig into them this morning. And hopefully as we dig into them, um, it'll give us a greater desire to love the Father. Should be our goal. Not a greater desire to um, think bad of ourselves or anything, but a greater desire to walk in the way of our Father. We love the world. The love of the Father is not it. It's interesting, as we read these three verses, we're going to see four arguments, or whatever you want to call them, that give us reasons to believe that we should love the Father. It's a big deal. Four reasons not to, or maybe I should even say, four reasons not to love the world. So John gives four arguments of why we should not love the world. See if you can find them there. Um, just... You want to step back before we get into that. And I just want to make a point here. Joe read verses before that, and I don't think I'm going to take the time to read it, but verses 12 to 14. And I think there, you can look, if you have your Bibles open, just look at those verses again. Um, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. There we see John very clearly, in a very gentle, nice way. And when I say gentle, nice, because he uses words of endearment like dear children. And he's talking about us here at Weavertown and the other Christians of the world. He calls them dear children. I write unto you fathers. I write unto you dear little children. I write unto you youth. I write unto you. And what's he telling them in these verses? He's telling them, you're doing it. You're overcoming the world. You are, what does it say? You have overcome the evil one. Um, verse 12 
Because you, you have been forgiven of your sins. Verse 14, I write unto you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write unto you young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And I want to say, that's not just the young men here. It's the young women. It's the people at Weavertown. John's saying, for you, and I can think I can say that for Weavertown, you have overcome the world. Why? Through the word. You love the word. And he's giving them encouragement to help them remember that they have. Okay? And then we get to the verses. And he gives four reasons. And remember, he's writing to brothers. He's not writing to non-Christians here. He's writing to brothers. And he's just giving them the argument again. So we want to leave today with not a fill of, hopefully not a, a heart of guilt. Unless, we, unless the Lord is saying, hey, you do need to change. You are backslidden or you are not a Christian. But I think for most of us, he's going to, hopefully this morning is a time to help us just remind us. God wants us to have his love towards him. He don't want us to have the love toward the world. And you have done this. I think a lot of people we were telling, I can say that about. You have overcome the world. You have been in the word of God. You have been saved. Um, now here's the arguments why we continue to love the Father. Why we don't backslide. Um, and the first argument is, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Okay? That hard to understand? Maybe a little bit. In our minds, easy to say. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Um, you see, our desires need to be in God and not the world. John gives us a clear commandment. What's it say in the first verse there? Love not the world. Okay? Clear commandment. You, <clears throat> Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom I have in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. That's D David saying, I want to love God, okay? Um, and the commandment is not to love the world. We need to understand that as a Christian, this is not an option but a commandment. Um, then John gives us a few good reasons for this commandment. And why do we need to love the Father more than the world? Somebody. Anybody know what Matthew 6, 24 says? Why do we need to love the Father more than the world? Can't love both. Right? No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. Very clear argument. You can't, like Alvin said, you can't love both. We can either love one or the other. You see, if we love the world, we lose the love of the Father. Anything in our life that is opposed to God is of the world and takes us away from our love for God. Anything in our life that is opposed, anything in our life that is opposed to God, um, will take us away from God. You see, if we love the world, we lose the love of the Father. One quote I picked up said this: "Misdirected love is the root of cause of worldliness." Well, I think I have that up here. Misdirected love is the root cause of worldliness. Worldliness sucks the sap from our greatest love until it becomes a dried up branch. We believe that? Is there anything wrong with talking about worldliness? If it does that, we should be talking about it, right? None of us wants to have our love of God taken away. And how does it get taken away? By a love for the world. The things in the world that take us away from God, John called idols. It's interesting. If you look at the last verse, you can look at 1 John, 
And look at the last verse in 1 John. And what does it say? Kind of an interesting comment here. It says, dear children. It goes in all the endearment. You know how the last chapters of most of the New Testament are, where he talks about all the different brethren. And he gives all his final words in his letter. So he's writing a letter to these brothers. And he ends the letter with, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Well, that's an interesting way to end the letter. Would you ever end a letter to people you love with, Dear brothers and sisters, keep yourself from idols. And then stop. Britain John. That's what he did. And basically what he was saying there was, don't let the things of the world or the things around us distract us from our love for God. So important. Things in the world that take us away from God are called idols. I remember as a young boy sitting here in church and hearing about um, worldliness, and it seemed rather annoying to me. What was the big fuss about worldliness? And you know, as I grow in my faith, I realize that some of that fuss may have been a little overdone. I don't know. I'm not going to rehash that or say that. But in a lot of ways, I think our church really cared about our love for the Father. And it mattered. Now, whether it was partly legalism, maybe not completely always. I'm not going to try to judge it. But as I mature in my faith, I realize that it is a big deal that we love God. And it is a big deal that we don't get sapped by the world. Second one is, second argument, you can find it there, because all the cravings of the world are not of the Father, but of the world. Now, I think the NIV uses the word cravings. I think the King James uses the word, what does it say there? Love of the Father is not, um, if any man love the world, love of the Father is not in him. So the cravings of the world are not the fathers, but of the world. I believe we need to take a step back here. God commands us not to love the world. Why? Because it's not of God. If they are not of God, then let's get a little more. They are of who? Oh, we don't want to say that, do we? They are of who? I know it's something we may tell our children, but they're of Satan, right? Just be clear. They're not of the world. Um, if they are not of God, who are, who are they? We need to put a face behind the system that is trying to pull us from the Father. And that system is Satan's system. Okay, let's just be clear. It's not God's system that's trying to pull us away from God, right? Very logically clear that it's not God. It has to be Satan's system that's trying to pull us away from God. What John's talking about when he says, love not the world... What is the world? Is the world the physical creation that God created? In creation. No, I don't believe it is. Because God created good things, right? Is the world the evil people in the world? No. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. No, it's not the people. So what is it? The world... And John, 1 John here is, in the Greek, it's called cosmos. And we probably heard that word before. Cosmos means a system. Okay? A system. So, Satan's system is what John is talking about. That we shouldn't love. It says a couple places in John, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Okay? The prince of the power of the air has this system that God's saying we should not love. A system that is against 
Christ. A system that is against God. A system that is trying to take, suck our love for God away. Is that, is that hard to understand? Not really for me. You're going to have God wants us to love him, focus on him because he cares about us. Satan, on the other hand, has a system created to destroy our love for God. And that's the system of the world. The thing we need to hate in this system is that it is organized against God. Our love for the world is a battle in our lives between God and Satan. They are both battling for our love. Okay? That's not real hard to understand, I don't think. They both want our love. Satan and his system, and God the Father. Chesterton says it this way, In every romance, there must be a twin element of love and fighting. Now, hear this a little more. In every romance, there must be three characters. There must be the princess, who is a thing to be loved. There must be the dragon, who is a thing to be fought. And there must be the prince, who is a thing that both loves and fights. The same is true, I think, in our um, battle against the world. We have the system that we're fighting. We have a love for God that we want to hang on to. Christ is battling against the prince of the world, and we need to be in that battle. The course of this world is greed, selfish ambitions, lust, flesh, pleasures, and the list goes on. Remember in the temptation where Jesus was offered um, the world? Ever worry about, ever read that and like, what, what was he giving? How did Satan offer the world? Well, basically, Satan was offering the system of the world. I think it'd be very interesting to study and try to understand this. I'm not going to try to explain it because I haven't thought through it completely or don't understand it myself. But Satan was giving Jesus, he said, if you worship me, you can have this system. Now, how would it have been if Jesus would have taken over the system of the world? Would it have been bad? been a very good system, right? In fact, we are going to see that system someday. Not yet. Time wasn't ready, and Jesus knew that. Jesus knew he will take that system away from Satan someday, but not yet. But if Jesus would have taken over at that point, he would have brought love and everything into the world. But Jesus said, I can't worship you. I'm not going to give in to to take over that system. So Satan has kept the system. Now after that, Satan didn't understand this, I don't think, or maybe he did. Christ redeemed us to live within that system, which is what we're doing here today. We're living a life within the system of the world and be, as a redeemed creator, that we can, um, as a redeemed person, and we can live um, a, a redeemed life. Jesus' answer there was, my kingdom is not of the world. If my kingdom were of this world, I'm sorry, that, that was later on. He meant, um, we get into that. Okay, I'm going to go with a third reason here. Because the world is passing away. So for you who believe the system of the world is better than the system of God, or love for the world should be, as, who have fallen in the trap of love for the world, um, I want to tell you something. <laughs> and he's reminding the people, the world's going to pass away. You are hooked up to a faulty system that's not going to work. I believe it doesn't take us long to realize the world system there's, is going to pass away. You really look at history, there's been many empires come and go. You look at our history in our own lives, and my wife and I talk about this. Um, we're getting older. Um, as a young man, I felt invincible at times. 
didn't last very long. Um, for you who are out there feeling invincible right now, it probably won't last very long. And why doesn't it last very long? Because our world is passing away. Okay? We don't live in a world that's going to last forever. Um, it's not too hard for most people to realize this. Even the world has movies on the, um, on the end times. Um, people talk about it. You talk to a non-Christian and they'll even talk about, yeah, we know the world's going to end sometime. Or they, they believe it. But do we live with this in mind? Are we following and putting our heart and soul into a world that will be destroyed? Think about that. How illogical is that? We know it's going to be destroyed, but are we banking on that system that's going to be destroyed? Or are we going to um, bank us on a system that's going to live forever? Or um, on a God who's going to live forever? Fourth reason, which is kind of like the third reason, is the is the will of God lives forever. So if we, it says that in the uh, verse there, um, if we are um, loving God and our heart is with the Lord, um, our soul will live forever. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst, the paradise of, of God. The tree of life is the life living forever with Christ. If we love the Father, we are on the winning side. So we just heard four reasons not to follow the world. Most of us probably would agree we would want to be on the winning side. That's not hard for us to understand and, 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 agree, and agree upon. You see, but I think we need to ask the next question is, how is the devil trying to tempt the world and his system? Most of us agree we don't want to be part of it. Most of us understand that it's going to end but how many of us are dealing with the temptations as they're coming along? Um, 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of Jesus, but is of the world. So John not only gives them four reasons to believe that the world isn't going to, is not the best, or four arguments against following the world, but he gives the devil's secrets away here and how he will tempt us. Now, they're not... New, have been here from the beginning. In fact, Jesus was tempted with all three of these. Um, and we have these temptations given to us by John. So we know how we will be tempted. There it is. The first two, the lust of the flesh, are desires. Things we desire. The last one is the pride of life. Things we, things we are prou uh, proud of. The world and Satan have two basic things to lure us with. Passion and pleasure. Okay? Satan gets us with those two things, passion and pleasure. I think since the beginning of time, those are the things that we've been um, lured with. Passion and pleasure and pride and possessions. The lust of the flesh is a lust. The lust of the flesh is a desire for fleshly pleasure. So expect Satan to come at us with these things. So we might ask the question here. Should we not have desire any fleshly pleasure? Should we not, some of us are here, can't wait to get home and eat that good lunch. Should we not desire that? Is it, should we not be desiring good things? Anybody? Enjoy the fruits of your labor, absolutely. Then what's he saying here about the lust of the flesh? 
Back to the first verse. If our desire for the fruits of our labor is greater than our love for God, it is of the world. Okay? So everything that we desire, we should desire it in a way that leads us to Christ, that points us to God, that gives us a... We'll talk about that maybe in a little bit more. We all know this answer. The answer, of course, is if any one of these things take us away from our love for, for the Father, we're seeking after the love of the world. The love of God and the love of the world cannot coexist. Or these pleasures, or the pleasures that we desire, like maybe lunch tonight or lunch this afternoon, um, are those pleasures dulling our love for God? Are they hurting our love for God? That's what we need to ask ourselves. The next lore for us is the lust of the eyes. Okay, what's that mean? I always thought these are kind of the same thing. Both pleasures. Lust of flesh, lust of the eyes. Well, the lust of the eyes is the desire to look good. Okay? Again, is that wrong? What's the answer? No. No. When is it wrong? Okay. Or when it takes away our desire for God. We all desire things that look good. We also all desire to look good ourselves. We want nice houses, nice cars, nice clothes, nice body, nice family, even a nice church. In the construction world I live in, we often talk about aesthetic value. Timber frame, we sell the aesthetic value. Unfortunately, too often this aesthetic value is made to bring honor to the one who owns the house, and maybe sometimes the one who builds it. Um, these $5 million homes are often built to honor the owners of the house. But before we're too critical of those wealthier than us, we should ask the question, what are we doing to look good? Why are we <clears throat> and why are we trying to look good? To honor ourselves or to glory and, glory and bring honor to God? Again, when we're trying to honor ourselves, we're following after the things of the world. When we're doing things to bring honor and glory to God, it's kind of, kind of simple and yet... Uh, maybe a little hard to understand it at times. Are we using these beautiful things to bring honor to ourselves or to the Father? Are we opposed to God or opposed to Satan? The passions of the world are described in two ways because there's two large classes of pleasures, physical and aesthetic. There's the lust of the flesh, bodily pleasures, and then the lust of the eyes, aesthetic and intellectual pleasures. I don't think John is too naive. He knows the world is not limited to the evils of Hollywood, but sometimes there, it comes right to us and things like we want to look good um, and we like, um, and sometimes even wanting our children to look good can be a worldly pleasure. You say, that sounds weird. True? If our children looking good is more important for our sake than for the sake of God, than it is a worldly pleasure. So anything that gets in the way of our love for the Father is a worldly pleasure. Does that make sense? I know I've been saying that quite often this morning. Hopefully we can keep reminding ourselves of that. And then the third one. Um, pride of life. Pride in what we have worked for. Hmm. Before I talk about the pride of life, I want to remind us that Jesus was tempted with all of these, um, and all, th all three of these. And he every time said, I don't want anything to do with this, because I love the Father much more than this. 
The pride of life that Satan tempts us with is literally means, and the word here, pride of life, literally means our earthly goods or um, our livelihood. Okay? Say our livelihood? What we have possessed. I'll use it. I know none of us are proud of our livelihood, are we? Um, maybe. You know, we've done very well this week, or we've done very well this year, and we feel quite proud of that. Um, the pride of life that Satan tempts us with literally means the pride of our possessions. The Greek word here is, for life is translated our livelihood. What we own, or have worked for, or have accomplished. First two lusts are things we desire, and maybe can't have. Okay? We're kind of, we're covetous of those first two things. Things that we desire, that we covet. The last one is the things we have, the pride of life, is the things we've accomplished. Now, none of us, well, I'll leave that there. Pride of life is things we have obtained and worked for on our own and now have. We take pride in it. They are, are the things of the world that we have accomplished, and we love these things more than God. Does that make sense? Or does that make too much sense? It's a little too hard. Um, the things that we have accomplished, when it becomes pride... And when we love that more than we love God, it is of the world. Most of us here have worked hard and have accomplished much. A lot of us have stolsus in our background. Hardworking and proud foot, right? Isn't that what the name means? Um, are we aggressive and hardworking? None of these things are wrong. But are we taking, are these things taking away for our love for our Father? That hard work and aggressiveness has accomplished us quite a bit here in Lancaster County. There's a reason Lancaster County is the wealthy county it is. One of the reasons is it has a lot of solstices in it that are very aggressive and very hardworking and love to accomplish things. And like I said again, those things are not wrong in themselves. And yet, when we are more proud of those things and we care more about the accomplishments we accomplish than our love for the Father, they become wrong. Something to think about. Too often our accomplishments bring us pride and take us away from a love for the Father. Are we willing to, like Christ, be humbled so we can have a greater love for the Father? Can we do that? Humble ourselves so our love for the Father can become greater. Now let's look at some practical, <clears throat> practical things um, in our lives, in the world. Now, let's look at a couple of practical things. And I just have a couple of points here in closing. Do we practically love not... How do we practically love not the world? Now, I know that doesn't sound right, but I just want to get into the practical um, side of things here now. And I didn't really know how to get into this. There's probably a lot of practical things we could talk about. Um, but I thought about this whole thing of love... For the world, and I realize that it's more than just you can't just pin down how we can accomplish this as a church. But I was thinking about maybe a couple things, and when I was thinking about that, um, I remember a conversation I had with a social worker who had a biological boy who was at camp. Um, and I know this illustration may be carried a little too far, but anyways, we had this conversation, and she said, When I brought my son to camp. He was bipolar, and I, I really thought that this whole thing of bipolar is just biological. Um, it's nothing that I did wrong or nothing that I could have done different. Um, after he came to camp, made some changes, he, she realized that it was more than that, and the psychologist at some point said he's not bipolar anymore, which is kind of 
hard to understand in that world. Um, and, I, and I thought about that a little bit, and I think in a lot of ways, and, and we were in the discussion, we said, you know, the diff- what had happened to that child, um, there was three things. One thing, some of the things, his traits made him um, have some of the problems he had, okay? He was born with some of those traits. The other thing was some of the in- his environment also kind of gave him some of the problems he had. And the third thing was, I believe, his attitude gave him um, some of the problems he had. So I want to just look at three things, and I don't want to get too carried away with that illustration, but I want to look at three things that I think will make a difference in us practically not loving the world. Okay? That makes sense. Um, first thing, it should be paramount. And I think most all Christians agree with this. That if we are going to not love the world, we need to have a redeemed heart, right? Okay? We need to be saved. Um, A redeemed heart. We can't begin to fight the world without a redeemed heart. Can't take it any further than that. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us in our walk. And we can't have the Holy Spirit without being born again. This is the greatest gift given to us by the Father to fight Satan in the world, is the Holy Spirit. And that redeemed heart. So first practical, I don't don't know if it sounds practical or not, is we need to be born again, okay? We cannot fight the world on our own. We can't fight the world with plain clothes. We can't fight the world with being set apart alone. We need, first of all, more than anything else, we need a redeemed heart. Um, The second thing I think about and this is where it gets maybe a little more controversial because a lot of evangelicals, and, and I think we hear this, this quite often, that all we need is a heart change. And I agree with that. That heart change is very, I mean, we can't legalistically do this on our own. And we've seen people who have tried to avoid the world without a redeemer, and it doesn't work. But that doesn't take away the idea that we also need to change our environment sometimes. Okay? An alcoholic does not continue to go to the bar and expect to solve his alcohol problem. Right? And we can't, as Christians, continue to put ourselves in the setting of the world and you say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, I, and I'll stop and step back a little bit. Um, I realize we live in the world. We go into the world in our business, um, and we need to convert the people uh, around us, and we need to spend time with people that are not Christians. Christ did that. But Christ also did some things to, or I should maybe say, we we need to do some things to make sure that we're not in an environment, constantly in an environment, that is going to get us sucked into the world. And I'll say this, that's what church is about. Right? That's why we come here Sunday mornings. There could be a lot of other places for us to go. But just being around a group of people, living in a group with a group of people, and that's what family's about. So if you as a parent let your children go do their things away from your family all the time and not be a part of your family, don't expect them to have your values. So there is a part of us that um, family is a protector against the world. Um, the other part is, is like I said, the church um, is a protector. It's a buffer. It's a place. It's a good, safe place. Now, we all know we can't, we're probably not going to be at church all, every day all the time, right? Um, we're not even going to be with our family every day all the time. 
And as our children get older, they're going to spend less and less time with us, and they're going to spend more time with other people. So the question is, um, how do we balance that out, or how do we do that? But I still think a change our environment or keep ourselves away from the world to a degree, okay, um, or away from the system of the world um, is an important factor. Look at the story of Lot. What happened to him? God called him a righteous man, or Abraham, that big discussion. And what did he do? As a righteous man, he went to Sodom and Gomorrah. He lived there, and I believed he tried to be a testimony to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. But at some point, at some time, it went too far. And he needed to get out of there. Um, for us, as Christians, at some time, at some point, we have to watch how much we are interacting with the world. And I know that's not a popular subject, but it is called protection from the world. And that in itself isn't going to keep us from being in the world. Okay? We can wear all the plain clothes we want. We can, we can, we can be around Christians all we want. If our heart's not right, um, we will still do the things of the world. The question for us today is, do we still have a protection against the world in our homes and churches? I know this may say old, sound old-fashioned, but I can say this. If old-fashioned protects me and my family from Satan's kingdom, then I guess I'm okay with being old-fashioned. We are going to need some protection from the world. Um, it's not the only thing. We need a redeemed heart, first of all. Um, but we also need some protection. And how that's done, different churches are going to do it different. Different families are going to do it different. But I think we also just need to be real practical with ourselves and realize that there's times we need to set limits with how much time we spend or how we spend time um, among people um, of the world or the system. I shouldn't say people of the world, the system of the world. The third thing I believe we need a change of attitude. Um, we need a positive spirit. If we, and you could put this with the first one, but if we as brothers and sisters wake up, or if, if we wake up tomorrow morning with a bad attitude, it is really hard not to get caught up with the world system. And I'm not talking about, system, I'm just talking about um, a negative system, a system not of God. It is so easy when our heart's not right to um, choose to love the world more than God. If our spirit isn't right, we will quickly look for the world to fix our problems. Right? When our spirit is not right, we want pleasures to fix our problems. And I'm not talking about pleasures, teenage pleasures alone. I'm talking about 80-year-old pleasures. I'm talking about pleasures, all of us. When we, as Christians, or we as people, wake up in a bad attitude, with our heart not right, with hatred towards a brother, which I'd like to say all five of these tests are basically the same thing. But John's just saying again, do you love God? Do you love God? And each one of these tests, do you love God? If you love your brothers, you love God, right? If you love the world, or if you um, lo love the world, you don't love God. He's trying to say it the same way. He's bringing different arguments in. So if we have a problem with our brother, we're not going to love God. If we have a, a bitter spirit or we wake up with a bad attitude towards people, we are going to fall for the pleasures of the world. Um, our heart needs to be right. 
The devil has you where he wants you if your heart is not right. And you'll quickly be looking to fulfill the needs of your flesh. Lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Any one of those three. If our heart is wrong, we are going to be quickly be moving to a pleasure to fulfill something that we're not getting in Christ. Selfishness, pride can easily be disguised in spiritual words and plain clothing and a disciplined lifestyle, but our worldly heart will someday be exposed. Um, we need to be constantly asking the Lord to change our heart. We need hearts of repentance, like it says in 1 John 1 there. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think that needs to be a daily process. It needs to be something we need to continue. If our heart's not right, um, if we're moving away from our love for the Father, we need to confess our sins. We need to get down on our knees and repent. In conclusion, I'd like to say this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But if we love the Father and we love him more with all our heart, and we love him with all our heart, then everything we will do will be a banquet of love with God. Because we love him, we will be able to sacrifice what we want for him. And if there's any desire of the flesh or desire of the eye that is not also a desire of God, then we will put it out of our lives so that we can, with John and with the psalmist, I'm going to read this last song, can say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fill, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's a love for the Father that I want to encourage each one of us to continue to desire, continue to look for, continue um, to, to become closer and closer to God. And that comes with a love for the Father and not for a love for the world. Let's kneel together in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you love us dearly and you care about our lives and that you want us to have that relationship with you, that banquet that we can have um, when we care and love you deeply. God, we know also that Satan is doing everything he can to distract us and to keep us from your love. Um, I pray that as we go about our week, as we go about our days, um, we can remember that you care about us and that you want us to continue in that love. And God, help us to avoid... Um, the world around us, the system of the world, Satan's system, but to be um, tuned into you and to your love. Thank you that um, you've given us the word. Um, thank you for what we can read in the word and, and becoming um, greater in our love for you. Thank you for the church here this morning. Um, just pray that as we go about our week, uh, we could care about the needs of people around us and care about um, the world around us, care about you and your system and, and become a part, a greater part of the, your system. Thank you for the church here and just pray that we could be a light for you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>